we do have a long way to go to get all of these people registered at voting age. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting two million ballots by hand. Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote, the podcast where election experts help you, the American voter, understand how elections work and how you can help restore confidence in American democracy. At the Trust the Vote Project, we've spent over 15 years talking with and learning from election administrators and government officials about how votes are cast, counted, and reported so that we can help ensure elections are run in a verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent way. Now, on Dead Men Don't Vote, we share what we've learned, provide insights from the world-class team we've built, interview leading experts uh, in elections, thought leaders who are passionate about our democracy, and we explore elections issues and controversies. We want to rise above the partisanship and muddied waters to answer all your questions about elections in a way that's pro-democracy and inspires trust in our election processes. I'm Gregory Miller, complete with a pollinated spring voice, software industry veteran, non-practicing IP lawyer, and tireless advocate for verifiable elections. Today, I'll be your host for the episode two, Accessibility at the Ballot Box. Thank you to everybody who listened to our first episode, Do Dead People Actually Vote? And gave us a review on Apple iTunes and their other favorite podcast forums. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, John Sevis, the OSET Institute's election technology whiz and voting accessibility guru, as well as OSET board member Cameron Quinn, who brings over two decades' experience in election administration, including special experiences with ensuring accessibility in Virginia. Well, thanks, Greg. And thanks to you and Cameron both for doing your best to uh, quash that myth about uh, widespread voting from the grave. Great episode. I'm thrilled that we've launched Dead Men Don't Vote so that we can bring our nonpartisan pro-voter approach to the people and and share what we can all do uh, to ensure our elections are verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent, our favorite set of four words. (laughs) So maybe today we should talk about something that really matters to all of us here at the OSID Institute, and that's ensuring that voters with disabilities have access to the ballot box and they have that access that they and everybody deserves. Totally agree, John. This is really a subject that is the kind of topic I'd hope was going to be part of what we were talking about when we launched Dead Men Don't Vote. Too often conversations about voting seem to revolve around the quote-unquote average voter. And that's fair, but often the challenges in elections are the people who aren't like you and me, those who may not necessarily have a driver's license, those who may have trouble getting the polling place, those that may have to worry about child care or elder care or some other responsibilities making it hard to get out of the house, those who do shift work, losing a shift if they want to go vote, those living abroad or those that are serving, particularly those overseas in the military, and especially those that have issues with accessibility, which is such a broad range and is something that many of us, most of us, if we're lucky to live that long, are going to have our own issues with and that make it harder to vote. Exactly. So let's kick off this episode about accessible voting. And let's do that by hearing directly from a voter about the challenges he has faced when trying to cast a ballot. My name is Nicholas Silver. I live in St. Louis, Missouri. I am a small business owner. 
I started losing sight early on. I, I developed a condition called cataracts, juvenile onset cataracts when I was four. I was having surgeries from the time I was four until the time I was 10 nonstop. But vision kind of got stabilized until I was about 17. Growing up in St. Louis, um, I was a part of the uh, DSEC program. I really excelled there. My books were really big. You know, my books, you take a normal size book and like you blow it up. Like, honey, I blew up the book. And you really made a, a real concerted effort to make sure that school was as seamless as possible, given the restraints of, you know, technology. And everyone was always was super nice to me, but it was just a different world. You know, I still had my challenges because I couldn't do everything that everybody else couldn't do. So what does life look like after high school? I had a really big surgery planned. I had a cornea transplant done. It was supposed to be my big opportunity to like have full vision and it didn't go well. The organ rejected. I'm in this excited world where people drive and they, they read books. As a kid, I just wanted to always be somebody and own a business like my dad. And so I went to college getting a bachelor's in sports and recreational management. In my first year, I was sleeping and, and woke up and I had uh, suffered a severe retinal detachment. I was probably totally blind for like a couple months. And then uh, I got some vision back, And but I really had to pivot into trying to figure out a life where I was like, I need an insurance policy. In case I never get my vision back, I need something I can do to take care of myself and my kids. That's when I found uh, massage. Society always tells you what you can't do, but... Walking into the door of massage school was an opportunity. I walk in like any other guy. The question I got day one in massage school was, what can we do to help you? And that was different. You know, it was really different from what I was used to because it was always, what can you not do? The difference when walking through the door of a, a polling place is vastly different. There's a certain hesitation about you being there. It was all about why are you here? Not, hey, come on in. You know, how can we help you? The inability to vote independently in America, it's a daunting task. The first time I tried to vote, I was about 30. I was ready to go. I had kind of held back because of my blindness and because of accessibility. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I go to the building, I look up the address where my polling place is, and the door's locked. I'm there early. I think it opens up at 7. I'm there at like 6.45, 6.30. Be the first one in. And there was a note on the door and I couldn't see the note. So I had to take a picture of the note. And so I get back home and my girlfriend reads it to me and the voting booth has moved. So I, uh, I missed my opportunity to vote. Big disappointment when you're like, man, I want to do this and I don't get a sticker. So I was always determined to go back. The second time I voted was my first time voting. I was 33. I had a, a guide runner. We got to know each other and he was like, hey, do you vote? I told him no, and I told him why, we'll vote together. So when I really reached out and, and extended an olive branch to me and to allow me to participate in society, and we went to go vote, and that was kind of the, the coolest day ever. So a day at the polling booth for a blind person, you have to plan out every part of it, even all the way up to just getting to the front door. It's a little different, but I still get the same kind of um, hesitation and this nervous energy that comes from the poll workers. And I, was, I was like, do you guys have a accessible voting machine? They didn't know, even know what I was talking about. Typically, you walk in and you do the same thing. You give them your ID, you know, you get checked in, they give you a paper ballot, but then... The real part comes about trying to vote. I had my friend Pierre help me, but voting independently is something I still have yet to experience. We walk in, we, we grab two ballots, and we go sit at a table. 
it's like bingo cards. He's there. He has two ballots in front of him. We talk about who's on the ballot. We make sure he reads the entire ballot to me. And but as a person who can't vote independently, I really constrained to just what he can do for me. It seems unfair. You know, one of these days I just hope to be able to go to the booth by myself and just go vote and walk out like everybody else does. I should be able to walk into a voting booth and go to an electronic machine, plug in a pair of headphones like you would at an ATM machine, and that machine automatically interface and be able to speak to me to allow me to vote independently. The everyday life that I live is completely adaptable, except voting. So the process of filling out a ballot in an electronic form on a screen, you would have a series of gestures that you would use on the tablet that you would use a series of like double taps or whatnot to select your candidate. It's literally just an opportunity to use electronics to allow that independence. On a grand scale, we're looking at like, why is this not available in every county in America? The million dollar question, how do you make voting accessible for everybody? So voting to me, what it looks like is this beautiful building that is uniform. It has wheelchair accessible. It's, it's not very noisy for someone who might have autism. It's got accessible voting booths for a person that's blind. It's an investment, but it's an investment that needs to be made so that I or the next person with whatever disability can really experience that part of the American dream. It's an issue of freedom. And freedom is only one piece of democracy, but it's a fundamental piece of democracy. I'm different. We're all different. Different is what makes a place like America or any other democracy. I'm open to the challenge each and every day of, as a blind person to be a part of the change and not part of the vicious cycle. I can go vote. Maybe. Wow. Thanks to Nicholas. That was powerful, but also hopeful. And to me, absolutely enraging. Because that story makes one important point obvious. No election can be free and fair unless all eligible voters can participate. Everybody has a right to vote privately and independently. Nicholas spoke to his lack of ability to vote independently. He couldn't exercise his right to vote because the polls weren't accessible to him. But later, he was able to vote, but not privately and independently. And that's his right. It's enshrined in federal law for a little bit less than 20 years. Nick's story is one of the very powerful stories that I heard early on when I got involved in election administration that really moved me and made me want to try and do what I could to improve voting for disabled voters. There were early efforts in the late 1990s to improve elections accessibility by getting more elections equipment to be accessible. But at the time, the voting equipment industry was really not there yet. I would hear stories much like Nick's story that would move me and really made me want to see what could be done even before there was equipment that was going to make it easier. You reminded me of a story when I was at the Virginia State Board of Elections, and I'd been invited to speak to the Virginia chapter of the National Federation for the Blind. I was talking to a group of folks that I assumed were aware of the things that were already in place in Virginia, and I made reference to curbside voting. I mean, I literally, it was just sort of like a, a short reference, and there was this immediate gasp and chatter that started going on. And I realized that even in this room of people who were advocates who were fairly involved 
there was this lack of understanding and awareness that there was curbside voting available in Virginia at every single polling place. We as election officials had done such a bad job of making them aware of a solution that was out there for them already and made me realize that it was tricky because the state wasn't where most of the voter information was going to flow from. I started an accessible task force in Virginia around uh, somewhere around the year 2000 with equal numbers of disabled voters and disabled advocates and election officials, both the registration and elections officials. And the first meeting we had, I walked away thinking, oh, I have opened Pandora's box and I don't know if we're going to be able to fix things because the entire two-hour meeting, all it was was people talking at each other about their frustrations and you know how hard it was to vote and how frustrating it was and why couldn't we do this and election officials saying you know we've tried to do this and then nobody wants to use the thing we spent 14 days trying to make happen so that a disabled voter could vote independently it really felt like they were just talking past one another but we had another meeting scheduled and i thought i can at least go for two or three meetings and see if we can get this back on track And the next meeting, it was a completely different conversation because once everybody had been able to sort of complain, they sort of stepped back and and felt like they'd been heard and they felt like they could now work with each other. And it was a profoundly impactful working group. We had a lot of people with a lot of interest and a lot of good ideas and a lot of willingness to spend time with us to try and help moving forward. I can't hold myself back from bragging (laughs) on the great people we have for this project. This is one of the great things uh, about Cameron and the the experience that you bring. The the really key point that I just heard you say is that as an election official, you had to learn what kinds of conversations to have with people so that you were actually engaging with the voters that you're there to serve so that they understand what their rights are, what their opportunities are. And it's not just like uh, anybody with disabilities or accessibility requirements of any kind just sort of, you know, telepathically understands, oh, well, yeah, remote access vote by mail is newly available in my county this election. It doesn't happen that way. But now it is a relatively new responsibility of election officials to learn how to not merely provide the accessibility that they're required to provide, but to engage with the voters that they're serving to make sure that the voters know Uh, what their rights are and what their opportunities are. Figuring out ways to connect and convey information to voters as it's changing so often is challenging. The message changes over time because we have new accommodations uh, for accessibility over time. So am I I kind of like overstating what a moving target this is? (laughs) I think you're probably understating it given my recollections. If you're in a wheelchair, a gravel parking lot, or two steep steps might as well be a moat. If you're vision impaired like Nicholas, those assistive devices he mentioned aren't just conveniences, but in some cases necessary requirements. But there are others like my mother who lost her vision over the last 20 years, and there was no way she was going to bother to try and adapt in that way. She wants to make sure that she can do her paper ballot and would rather get somebody that she trusts to help her fill it out. I, I knew I must actually be uh, keeping the right relationship with my mother 
when um, the trust level was there to ask me to help her fill out her ballot, since we are polar opposites on our political views. But it's important to understand that just because there's an impediment doesn't mean it can't be addressed. One of the biggest challenges for election officials is they never get the funding that they need to really be able to do the addressing of all of the different kinds of challenges that there are. The Government Accountability Office report from June of 2021 found that 60% of polling places in 2016 had at least one impediment to voting for people with disabilities. John, can you talk about whether the situation's been getting better? Well, you know, that really kind of depends on what your metrics are for better. I will say that the funding issue that you raised is really important. I mean, election officials have a, basically an ever-expanding job. Like every election cycle, there's some something else uh, you know, people need to do to run an elections organization. And it's not like the funding really has been growing proportionally, no. not at all. But another metric is, you know, just sort of participation, right? So if you look at uh, the recent election, Turnout was like, you know, almost two thirds, you know, 62% for everybody and pretty much the same for, for voters with disabilities, at least insofar as we're able to, to track them. So that's an improvement, but it was partly because election officials were required because of the pandemic to make all sorts of accommodations. And also there was uh, special funding available for that. So I, so I think that. Although it's great that the the voting gap between voters with accessibility needs and other voters really dramatically shrunk in the last major election, I would not count on that being the same. The durable effect, the durable effect probably is that many voters are much more aware now of what their rights are and what their opportunities for voting with accessibility. So better, but boy, is, there is no, this is not the time for resting on, on any laurels. Um, and it's still the case, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, one in four people had trouble voting when they had accessibility needs, you know, a decade ago, and this time maybe one in eight, one in nine, it sounds like, you know, 50% reduction in badness. Great, great. Okay. But we still have a boatload of badness and there's no guarantee that it won't go up again in the next major uh, election cycle. But that's metrics, right? I mean, so I'm answering your question is something's getting better or worse, you know, kind of with numbers and you know, stuff like that. But those are just data gathering to help policymakers make decisions about what their next priorities are and how much money to spend on them. That's important, but that's not about actual voters. So when you listen to the story of Nicholas, you'll find some challenges that were really, really important, not just in general life, but also for elections. And somehow, you know, he's reporting the feeling that at least among some people, you know, it's okay that he and other voters like him have these barriers that other people have. But it's not. It's not okay. It's totally not okay. It never will be okay. Nobody should be feeling that they have their full right to vote. They don't have their full accessibility. They don't have their full access. That's, that's, the really important part for me to know whether we're getting better. Yeah. By the numbers. Yeah. But in terms of a thoroughgoing commitment to meeting every voter's right to vote privately and independently, not so sure about that. I agree that there's always some room for improvement and that in the end, we want to make sure that every voter 
who legally has the right to vote is able to effectuate their choice to vote. And we reached out very heavily to the disabled advocates and the disabled community in Fairfax County to encourage them to come so that they would be giving us feedback. And we were very pleased that we got a number of folks from the the disabled community to participate, including at one location, we had a quadriplegic uh, who used his mouth stylus to vote. And I don't know whether he was more excited and pleased or we were more excited and pleased. I really take pride in being able to make those kinds of improvements. So everybody needs to remain vigilant. Eternal vigilance. Yep. Right. I completely agree, but I, I actually want to bring in just one more point. And not everybody is able to vote in person. The basic accommodation for people not, not able to vote in person is voting by mail or voting at home or absentee voting. A lot of different words for the same thing. But it's so easy to forget that the intersection of accessibility and mobility really leaves some voters really stuck. So if you are someone who can't get to a polling place or an early voting place physically, and you can't use a pen and paper, then, you know, you're kind of stuck in some ways. And it's great to hear stories about people who, as you said, with your mother, were able to make their own choice and say, for me, the most convenient, trustworthy way to vote is by giving up my right to privacy and independence and trusting someone that I know very well to help me mark that uh, paper ballot at home. But that also leads to the horrible misconception. And believe me, I mean, I've talked to disability rights advocates uh, about this. They think, oh, well, people can usually find somebody to help them. It's like, yeah, but they shouldn't be required to give up their rights to private and independent voting. So there's more work to do uh, for technology that's kind of like uh, a voting machine, but something that you can run on your own computer or tablet or whatever at home. There's room for something like curbside voting, but bring it to the voter's curb rather than having the voter get to the voting place curb. There's just always more work to be done because there isn't any one size fits all solution for your quote unquote voters with accessibility because, those, man, that is 27 different kind of people at least to do. And I fear that on the political spectrum, some perhaps well-intentioned new restrictions on absentee voting or voting at home or voter registration on, online will have an unintended side effect of creating new barriers to, for uh, voters with accessibility needs. Wouldn't it be great if more people understood their rights and their opportunities with accessibility needs and maybe even exceeded the participation rate for quote-unquote ordinary voters. Indeed, John. We're certainly going to be watching that closely in 22. But you know, one of the really interesting things is the impact of social media. There's an incredibly uh, fast-growing hashtag out there, Crypt the Vote, uh, and they're raising awareness too. So let's get to some uh, audience questions so we can dive in a little deeper. Hi, Greg. We have a bunch of great questions from the Speak Pipe this week. Let's go ahead and get right into it with Abby from New Hampshire. Hi, I don't have a disability, but I obviously want anybody who does to be able to vote. What are some of the biggest obstacles facing voters with disabilities today? Thanks for that great question, Abby. One is the voting equipment is old, and even the voting equipment that's fairly new isn't as accessible as we would like it to be, and it's going to be a while to develop that new technology 
in the current process of getting voting equipment approved. And hopefully one of the things that OSET's working on is going to help short circuit some of those challenges. Additionally, getting enough good polling place workers who are able to work with the technology and who are able to appropriately address voter accessibility issues is a continuing problem for the election officials. And because of the challenges at local and state budgets, many of this is beyond the end of its designated service life. And there's a need for new equipment, but even the new equipment isn't as accessible as a lot of people would like. And, you know, Americans with disabilities, regardless of age, are much more likely than those without disabilities to experience the digital divide in the use of technology and the Internet. Uh, And that's something that we have to keep in mind as we try and address how to fix that. The good news is that everyone is becoming more likely to be able to use technology. And obviously here at OSET, we're committed to trying to see what we can do using technology to really improve things. And finally, I think one of the biggest challenges is that in many places across the country, these are smaller localities. There may be a single full-time staff member who not only runs elections, but has several other duties unrelated to elections to do. Thanks, Cameron. And we have another question from Franco from California. How can technology be used to remove obstacles to voting for the disability community? Great question. Of course, that's my wheelhouse. So of course, I like it. So one way that technology can remove obstacles, uh, and I'm going to go in order here. I'm going to think about Franco as a person who is just maybe, I don't know, turning 18. It's like, first thing you do, online voter registration, filling out pieces of paper and mailing them and hoping they arrive and trying to figure out if anybody ever pays attention to them, unfortunately, is something that people have to do in about a dozen states. But outside of that, online voter registration, the technology for that's mature, it works. There's lots more to do for in-person voting. Yes, there are accessible voting machines, but there is a lot of work to do that remains to get systems that really are as accessible as what current expectations are and to get them out there in a, in a way that they can be developed inexpensively so that we're not sitting here with election officials saying, oh, it's going to be another five years before I can upgrade to a, a less inaccessible voting machine. Uh-uh. No, it's got to go faster than that. Uh, that. That, of course, is part of where our open source mission comes in. And number three, there are voters who have to vote at home, can't use a pen, there's some products out there now called remote access vote by mail systems. Pretty pretty good start. They're commercial systems. Their accessibility isn't great. And they, there are a number of different defects. But it, that's a start that needs to be followed up on. How can we have software that people can run on their own PC or their own tablet that basically brings a voting machine to them, but actually really works without any compromises, no trade-off between using uh, using a home voting system and any of the other important characteristics, privacy, independent, secret ballot, you name it. So those are, those are three areas that anybody in election technology, uh, including OSET, should be working on to get to the point where the technology is delivering on a par for voters that don't have accessibility issues. And, and Franco, I'm going to chime in on John here and, and just let you know in a reassuring way, this is precisely the kind of stuff that the Trust the Vote project is working on. We, in fact, have a team that's working to develop a absentee ballot marking solution for those who are relegated to do 
to be at the home. They can't actually get to the polling place. So one of the many reasons that, that our folks are so interested uh, in what we're doing is because that's exactly what we're doing. This is going to be public technology, open source, which means the cost is going to be ultra low and the, and the code bases will be verifiable and, and all the things that we need to ensure the integrity of that. So we're working on that. And it's a great question. Wow, that's really exciting stuff. It's so uh, cool to learn some of the behind the scenes operations. And it's amazing how much tech can do these days. Next, we have Carol from Kansas. What requirements do election administrators have regarding accommodating voters with disabilities? And how can those laws or policies be enforced? So that's another great question, Carol. Thank you so much for, uh, for calling. I'm going to note the fact that there are lots of different laws at the federal level in addition to the state level, including the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA Standards for Accessible Design, the 508 of the Rehab Act, the Help America Vote Act, a lot of other things as well. In terms of accessible polling place locations, we've actually had laws in place for almost 40 years regarding polling place accessibility. And if there's a polling place that isn't accessible, somebody should be in touch with the access board if they aren't getting somebody at the local level to be dealing with that problem. So if disabled voters or their family and friends could contact the local elections office, discuss the specific challenge or challenges, and ask the elections office what options there might be for making election participation easier in the specific circumstances, there are very few election officials that won't try to accommodate somebody if they understand what is needed. And so just like it helps under the ADA when a person who's disabled requests an accommodation, really what I'm suggesting is you ought to call and explain your circumstance and ask for an accommodation related to voting. Great. Thanks. And our last question is from Martina from Indiana. My sister uses a wheelchair, and I've been helping her vote since she turned 18. I want to do more to help others like her. Is there anything I can do to make elections more accessible in my community and across my state? It's a great question, and thank you to Martina for being willing to help others just as much as you've, you've helped your sister. Uh, because literally every single person uh, has the ability to make change and to raise the bar for accessibility. One way to do that is to make sure that everybody that you know who might have accessibility issues understands what their rights are and what their opportunities are. Find out how to contact your county or parish or township elections office. Google is very particularly good about having special sensitivity for questions about elections and directing them to the right place. Call them, call your local elections office, go visit in person, find out exactly what all the options are for all the different types of voters with accessibility needs. Be warned, they'll probably try to dragoon you to be a volunteer poll worker as well, but whether or not you're up for that, that's, that's really the, the most important thing because a great part of the barriers are just people who don't have the information. For example, if you're going to help somebody uh, in a wheelchair to go to vote in person because that's what they want, you probably find out that they can go to their local elections office any day for two weeks before election day and get that taken care of ahead of time. But you got to start by finding out directly from your election officials what opportunities they have for voters with all kinds of disabilities to actually cast their ballot with equal 
access. Fantastic. Well, this episode has been chock full of really interesting information. And today's secret word was dragoon. We're all going to Google where we need to become a poll worker and the word dragoon later. (laughs) If you'd like for us to feature your question on a future show, please go to deadmendontvote.org. And remember, there's no apostrophe between the N and the T in don't. And you can leave us a voice message there, or you can use the voice message link at www.speakpipe.com forward slash dead men don't vote. Again, no apostrophe between the N and the T in don't. Your question can be recorded from your laptop or a mobile device. Please tell us your first name and your state of residence and keep your question under a minute or so. Thank you. Thanks to everybody who submitted questions, and especially to Nicholas for sharing this powerful story. You know, I hope this episode shed light on the voting experiences of those in our community of disabilities and encouraged you to do your part to ensure that all eligible voters are able to cast a ballot without undue burden. You know, I think it's important to note that the disability community is different from most communities and that the vast majority of us will one day all be a part of it if we aren't already. And I sincerely hope that every one of our listeners will uh, live deep into their golden years when it's uh, virtually a certainty that you'll develop a disability regarding your vision or your hearing or mobility or, or some other disability that just comes with advancing age. At OSET and the Trust the Vote Project, we work to ensure that everybody can exercise their right to vote. And whether you're part of the disability community today or not, I hope you'll join us in supporting more accessible elections. Well said, Greg. As we said at the top, discussions about access to the ballot box too often ignore these sub-communities of voters that need accommodations. That's right. We want to help foster these conversations. And not only uh, just to make these conversations happen, but more often and to encourage more participation among the public. And that's why we keep saying, you know, contact your local election officials, find out, help your friends find stuff out. Please follow us on Twitter at Dead Men Don't Vote, or at Trust the Vote to join our Twitter space conversations, starting with the first one about disability and voting. We'll announce a date and time on Twitter, so follow us at Dead Men Don't Vote, and join us for live Q&A to share your story about how your right to vote has been impacted by your disability. We would love to have you there so we can dive into this issue in a more interactive way. Indeed. Thanks, John. So let's get to what we uh, like to call the good stuff, uh, which is bits of positive elections related news that is flying well below the radar. So, John, I'm going to hit you up first. What's your good stuff for this episode? Well, I have two good stuffs that are very closely related. One of them is a shout out to National Federation for the Blind as one organization among several whose advocacy for uh, voters with accessibility needs includes one of the enforcement mechanisms that one of our questioners asked about, and that is litigation. Sometimes it really is necessary for advocacy groups to take legal action to encourage government officials to do what's legally required for them. That's regrettable, but the other really good thing is that there are some states that are reducing uh, the need for that type of activism by actually making election laws that improve access. Illinois is one of those particularly Uh, focusing right now in the Illinois legislature on increased assistance for voters who are visually impaired. California is another state where the legislature is considering other changes to election law to to expand accessibility. And those activities by those state legislatures 
are really, really important because they make it even more explicit, uh, not only what needs to happen, but how it needs to happen. And key points are to be harping on this, that new legislation can include new appropriations, aka money, that can be distributed to local elections office to meet their new responsibilities. So thanks, thanks to both those who litigate and thanks to those who pass laws that reduce the need for such litigation. I enjoyed John's story. My good stuff is that this past weekend, I was in the middle of rural Virginia assisting the Mattapanai Indians in Virginia who were trying to reorganize and adopt a new constitution. They had enlisted me as a volunteer to help them as they tried to design their process and then implement. Uh, And we had voters participating electronically, in person, and by mail. And they had a 64% turnout and approved their their new constitution by 100% of their voters. Fairly rare for anybody to get 100% in an election, but it was really an exciting thing for me to watch. And they were incredibly excited about their sort of steps in this direction. That's awesome, Cameron. It's great. And this is the thing, right? Helping everyone towards better free and fair elections. Listen, I want everybody to remember that we at the Trust the Vote Project are working to make election technology more verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent. We call that the vast mandate, as an election official many, many years ago taught us. Uh, How do you know if you have a trustworthy election? That's it, if you can do those four things. And we're doing it by building open source voting technology. We call it the People's Voting System. If you'd like to support our work, please join the Trust the Vote project at trustthevote.org and click the join button at the top. Annual membership is just $25. However, if you contribute at least $5 per month, we're going to also give you insider access to extended episode conversations where we'll dive into these topics even deeper than here. Uh, Zoominars to meet the members of the team to discuss their work, some limited edition gear, I'm told, to support the project and Dead Men Don't Vote podcast and lots of other cool stuff. If you'd like to ask us an elections-related question or otherwise be in touch, please follow us on Twitter at Dead Men Don't Vote or trust the vote or on facebook at dead men don't vote or you know just email us at inquiry at osetinstitute.org finally please take a moment to write a short review on apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts so that more people hear our message about how we can improve our elections well again i'm gregory miller and on behalf of cameron quinn and john sevis and our disembodied voice of democracy frame masters thank you for listening to dead men don't vote Please remember, it's your civic duty and civil right to participate in elections. Let's all be pro-democracy by prioritizing country over party and supporting free and fair elections in your community and across America. Until next time, make sure you're properly registered and ready to vote because the primaries are coming around the corner and our democracy depends on you. You.